Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm really excited about the guests that we have today. We're definitely going to be talking a lot about motorcycles, but more than that, about the adrenaline and the inspiring story of all the different events and things that have happened in his life that has allowed, really, to bring his latest baby, Damon Motors, to life. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jay. Jay Girard, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So, originally born in Manitoba, there in Winnipeg. So, uh, how was life growing up there? I don't remember. My mom got me out of there before I started to retain memories, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Pretty cold, I'm told. So, wh wh where did you guys go after that? Chilliwack and then Vancouver, North Vancouver, basically, since I was three. Got it. So, then how was, how was life, you know, then the, the upbringing and, and growing up in Vancouver? Oh, it's awesome. Um, North Vancouver was kind of a dump in the 80s and 90s, and it's turned into an exceptionally beautiful and, and uh, really, really expensive place to live. But we, we always had, no matter what time, was the mountains and, and the trails and the lakes and the rivers and the ocean and the snow on the tops of the mountains, which was a big pull for me when I was younger. And obviously, as when you were younger, there was a moment in time when you were four or five years old, where all of a sudden you see yourself at 160 kilometers an hour. Yeah, I was pretty young. I was uh, my, my babysitter, my mom's babysitter at the time. I don't think he wanted to hang around the house while he babysat a five-year-old or four-year-old. So he would you know, sit me down in front of him on this big BMW sport bike and rip me up and down a highway uh, when I was really young. And of course, my chin was basically on the gas tank and all I could see was the speedometer. And I have a very clear memory of that. And of course, the feeling and the air and the wind and all that too. I mean, obviously that 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 was the seed that was planted to it certain sure was. degree. <laughs> and they, obviously that seed, you know, like would they fruit and give something great, you know, later on. But I think that for you, obviously a really big component, and I guess that that may create that ambition and competitiveness too, was that you eventually became a professional snowboarder. Yeah. I started snowboarding when I was 12 after five years of skiing on the local mountains. They were, you know, 15 minute drive from our house. And, uh, and then snowboarding came around in 1989 and I thought that looked way better. So I jumped onto that. And within a couple of years of, you know, taking the bus to the ski hill all the time, I wanted to do it professionally. And when I was 20, I moved to Whistler to pursue my dream 
And uh, I got my first sponsor like a month or two later and started coaching junior national uh, students and, uh, and just that just kept on going. And definitely getting injured was a, a big bummer, but uh, something that really took you into more the direction of business. So tell us about that transition. Well, we were always injured. <laughs> there were always injuries. You were never at 100%, you know, when you're snowboarding and competing. There's always something you're working around. Yeah. Sore ankles or shin splints or recent surgery or whatever it was. But ultimately, I think by 26 years old, my my injuries, you know, started to outpace my ability to heal and I needed to actually move on to something else. And I took a course called the Landmark Forum and that really opened my eyes to bigger things, bigger possibilities for me, really, at the end of the day. And I didn't know what yet, but that kind of coincided with a recent shock that I took when I watched the bombing of Baghdad in 2003 and just thought there's got to be a way to get the world off oil. And, and by 2005, I had declared that I'm going to give my life to transforming transportation and that if I fail, it would, be a, it would have been a worthy life, even if it takes me till I'm 80, 90 years old. Um, that even if I fail, but I gave my whole life to that, I would have made some difference and that would be worth my life. So that was kind of my, my conclusion. And I spent five years cowering away from that, that, that declaration because it was so daunting and scary. And who am I, you know, a snowboarder with barely a high school education to uh, do something like that. But by 2008, I realized how miserable I was not pursuing it. And that that thing that that seed I'd planted in, in, in 2003 was going to keep me miserable if I didn't face it. So I founded a company called REV Technologies, and we made electric pickup trucks and SUVs, learned how to raise money, learned how to hire people, you know, all the other nuts and bolts that go along with that, that eventually led to building electric pickup trucks and SUVs that were uh, uh, able to stabilize energy demand on the power grid for our US Army customers and uh, partnerships with Honeywell and SAIC and the Pentagon, Chrysler. Yeah, it was a good run. And how much capital did you guys raise for that business? Uh, five million in capital and 20 some odd million in contracts that came from different uh, customers. So we were living off, con uh, living off contracts mainly. And then obviously there was a, a moment that, uh, you know, unfolded a sequence of events that was not uh, the ones that you had expected, you know, and it was the, the, the pricing of gas that affected you. Yeah, well, there was... We had this cloud capability to control the energy on the vehicles remotely. So over a wireless internet connection, we could see the vehicles anywhere within a country that we had deployed and we could dispatch energy from the battery into the grid or from the grid into the battery. Uh, and, and that was pretty valuable. We thought that was really what should scale. And around the end of 2011, early 2012, natural gas prices just wiped out the market we were focused on, which was government and, and, and utility fleet customers. And so they all wanted to go to natural gas vehicles because that would be lower cost of ownership. So we had to make a pivot because there was no telling if or when natural gas prices would climb or when electric vehicle battery costs would come down enough. And this was 2010, 2011, 2012. So the cost of electric vehicle batteries was much, much higher then. Uh, and so we made a pivot and I carried the cloud computing capability from REV into a new startup I founded called Mojio. And that was uh, May 2012. And, and from REV, I mean, obviously, when you go through, um, through, I mean, obviously, your first baby, your first company, you know, it was not the outcome that you had hoped. So I guess, what lesson do you think it was there for you to learn? It was actually my fourth company. 
<laughs> I had a few before that, but this was my first technology company there that was go. way outside of my abilities. And I'm really, really glad I did it. Um, and, you know, Elon Musk's famous quotes are something to the effect of, you know, even if you think you're going to fail, but you think it's important, you should do it. And, I, and exactly is it's exactly, you know, what applied in my life here. Um, definitely what I took away from that experience at Rev, a couple of things. You can't succeed without an exceptional management team. And as much as I wanted to hire a management team that was better than me, finding them and knowing how to attract them and knowing how to attract the capital that attracts them in order to have the money to run the business were skills I didn't yet have. And so Rev struggled because we didn't have the right, we didn't have much of a management team and we didn't have the right leadership, which the biggest part of was me. In 2012, when I founded Mojo, I, I sought to um, fix that problem immediately. And I founded Mojo with three other co-founders. And so the four of us, you know, we had a really experienced and successful VP sales. We had a very experienced CTO, CFO, and myself. And, and that really changed the, the direction and outcome of Mojo. Uh, with with way more potential to attract the financing it needed to see its vision, because with Mojo, what 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 was the business model there? Uh, Mojo is a connected car device that plugs into any car in the world and streams its data to the cloud and to an app on your phone, so you can be connected to any car no matter what. Turns any car into a smart car, and we built an open platform for apps, so any app developer could build apps for any car, uh, and we distributed it through wireless carriers as a subscription add-on. To your to your to your monthly phone plan, and that was definitely the right business model. Uh, it was infinitely less attractive to the venture capital community because of partnering with wireless carriers seemed very daunting. But we beat all our competitors who are much better funded because of that. Because you know when you win AT and T or you win T Mobile or you know you win a third of a country's population in one shot. And so we won Deutsche Telekom first, and then and then Telus, Rogers, Bell. Uh, uh, T-Mobile, Metro PCS, and suddenly, you know, over a period of a few years, Mojo was in nine countries. Wow. And it's still doing very, very well today. How big is Mojo today? It's millions of connected car subscribers. Yeah. On, on multi-year cell phone plans or connected vehicle plans. Got it. I mean, definitely um, a good footprint there. So for you, obviously, it's time to um, leave your baby, leave Mojo. So what was, what was that like for you? Um, you know, it was something that I thought was, was, uh, the right thing to do and was, um, inevitable, uh, Mojo, as soon as we landed our lead, our lead investor from Deutsche Telekom, I knew Mojo was going to find its first big success in Europe. And, you know, as much as I would love to live in Europe, that was not really an option for me with my family. Um, and so we started the process of finding someone with considerable European telecom experience who was able and willing to spend a great deal of their time, if not all of it in Europe. Um, to grow uh, Mojo's footprint with 10 countries that Deutsche Telekom services. I mean, 10 countries on a silver platter, it's, you don't turn that down. So, um, so that was good. I mean, that was just really, really exciting. That was the, absolutely the best thing for me as a shareholder and for the company and for all of our shareholders in the company. Uh, so, uh, so that gave me a bit of a six-month time to you know, think about what's next. And uh, actually tried very hard to take time off. Um, I didn't do a very good job of that. Um, and in the summer of 2016, I went off to Jakarta in Indonesia for my best friend's wedding. And that really kind of precipitated the events that led to Damon. So then what happened there? Because I know there was a drown, almost drowning situation. Yeah, that was interesting. So as a motorcyclist, since I was 19, I always thought 
that I just wish I could ride on the streets with a whole bunch of other bikes instead of cars. That would be way better because cars are always cutting you off and they can never see you. I mean, if you get cut off twice a day, you're having a good day on a motorbike by cars. It's so frequent. It's so normal to be cut off uh, where they just don't see you. And I can get into all the statistics of it. But um, <laughs> in Jakarta, riding with thousands of other motorbikes around you where nobody follows any of the rules, I mean, red light, green light, truck coming, it doesn't matter, um, was was a bit more than I had, <laughs> I, had I had ever dreamed would be cool. Um, and it was wild and crazy and dangerous. And if you don't do it, you got to get off the road because you will be in others way. So you really find yourself just um, succumbing to the way people ride and commute. And while I thought it was kind of fun and exciting and wild, it was also a real eye opener that, you know, in Jakarta alone, here's 22 million people who buy a Suzuki or a Kawasaki or a Bajaj motorbike who are not given the choice of safety if they could. Because the motorcycle companies don't produce any solutions that make their motorcycles safer. Um, and so it had nothing to do with whether you could afford a better motorbike. You're not going to get a safer one. And it's not just 22 million people, you know, I, as I started to, to really reflect on this, it's 1.5 billion people that depend on a motorcycle. They have no choice. If you want to get to work, or if you want to get to school, or you want to go get food, you will get on a motorcycle. There's no other way. Um, and so you're taking a massive amount of risk on a day-by-day -day basis for on behalf of you and your family. And as a society, I think it's crippling. So, you know, I spent a lot of time reflecting on that as I rode for seven hours from one side of the island of Java to the other with my best friend um, on this first or second day we were there. And when we arrived that night, uh, it was 6 p.m., sun was setting, I went for a dip in the ocean, and I duck-dived under a couple of waves, not knowing I was following the direction of a riptide. And after only a couple of ducks, I was 200, 300 feet out from the, from the beach. And I couldn't swim back against the riptide as much as I was trying. And eventually I was losing my ability to stay above water. I wanted to call out for my best friend because I could see him on the beach line and he's a surfer, you know, that's why he was there. And he's, uh, he was also a lifeguard. So he knew how to save people out of the water. And eventually I, I just gave up and I yelled for help before it was too late. And he came at an angle. He knew exactly how to swim against the waves. He came at an angle, grabbed me and took me back easily not against the riptide. The next day we rode back, or two days later we rode back from one side of the island to the other, and I had seven hours again on his motorbike to think about how differently I saw everybody and I saw the world and I saw the problems. You know, I started to see the problems of the motorcyclists in in Jakarta as my own problem. You know, sort of extending what I nearly just lost to everybody out there, and and that really changed everything for uh, for me. Well, then let's talk about what you did next to really bring, to really mm. bring this company to life. Well, I, I guess I got back to Vancouver and I still was not working. So that was good. I had a lot of time to plan and think and research and I dove right into it, started to think, can you make motorcycles safer? And I'll be totally honest with you. I wasn't sure you could. It didn't make sense. How are you going to make something that doesn't stand up on its own safer? And then, event, you know, of course, I, I knew about collision warning systems. I ended up, uh, I bought a Tesla. And I thought, you know, I'm going to buy a Tesla and I'm going to use this thing until I, I reverse engineer how everything works in my mind. And then I need to find a CTO who's going to know how to do this. And so I went on to a, for a long uh, eight, nine month process of interviewing people and, and getting to know different potential CTOs. And, and me and Dom, my co-founder at Damon, um, we really hit it off. And we spent five months together talking about everything Damon. 
Uh, and I think within a couple of months, he knew exactly how to do it. <laughs> He's just, it was it was awesome. And three months after we founded Damon, we had two prototypes that were fully functional, and we were able to validate for ourselves while riding down the highway the idea that you could cre- you could create a bigger bubble of time and space around you to give you more reaction time. Um, and you know, simply put, it's a collision warning system that doesn't exist on motorbikes. And as normal as they are on cars today, it was unclear if or how you could do it. You don't want, you know, sounds in your helmet. You know, how do you communicate to the rider that there's a threat without increasing distraction on a motorbike? It's ever more uh, critical. And, uh, and so we had really that to figure out first and foremost. Wow. So then the business model of Damon, I mean, what's, what's the business model? Well, um, business model is to sell motorbikes <laughs> okay. and there's a lot of other opportunities there, but, um, there's, there's ultimately we need to get a Damon motorcycle in as many people, people's hands as possible. There are a ton of analogies for a time when there was, a when there was an industry change that never went back, steamships, diesel freighters, airplanes, jet planes, um, cell phones, smartphones, you know, film cameras, digital cameras, uh, where, where the legacy companies held on to the past. They had infrastructure, they had bureaucracy, they had supply chain contracts, they had labor unions that prevented them from changing. Uh, DVD rentals and Netflix. I mean, there's so many good examples where all of those legacy aspects of their business prevented them from changing, even if they could see it coming. I'd say the car companies couldn't really see Tesla coming. But the motorcycle companies can most certainly see the next Tesla of motorcycles coming with Tesla as an analogous example. Um, That doesn't mean they can make changes. In fact, for the most part, they probably can't. And and so Damon has an opportunity to not just sell cars or sell motorbikes, but to offer them on a subscription plan, which is what we did at Mojio, which is how we beat all of our competitors, um, to reduce the payment friction, to reduce the, the, the risk, the safety friction, to reduce the noise and emissions friction to reduce the the buyer friction you know we're not going to sell through third party dealerships we're going to sell online exactly how 81% of teslas are sold um you know and so on and so on and so on and when you stack up those benefits those value propositions it becomes exceptionally compelling and our competitors can chip away they can have a bit of this they can have a bit of that but if they don't have the whole stack it's going to be really really hard to compete with us so that's kind of, in a nutshell, what we're doing. And in a nutshell as well, could you like break down like the, because you have different bikes, I mean, on the, on the, the way that you can pay for this on a monthly basis, I mean, it's like one ninety nine or something like that. And you're looking at what, what are the price points of, of those bikes and what, what, I mean, obviously they're racing bikes, but how would you describe them to the people that are listening and watching? Yeah, well, the motorcycle that we have today is called the Hypersport. It's, it is a race style bike, but it's a street bike. It's the Tesla Roadster, if you will. It's the yeah. first, you know, it's the tip of the spear. Um, and it exists at a higher price point, you know, in, uh, in a very premium segment uh, where we can introduce new technology that is expensive. You can't, you can't introduce it onto a million low cost bikes on day one. You have to get there by cost reducing and commoditizing over many, many years. So you have to start at the top of the pile. Right. Um, but the Hypersport is designed a, um, from a platform we call Hyperdrive. And Hyperdrive is a, is a, a, a battery, and it's a motor, and it's, a, it's the chassis all in one. And, you know, the battery is not like your 6-volt your battery. It's a 250-pound lithium-ion 
battery that encompasses 80% of the mass of hyperdrive. The, the bike is mostly battery, just like the Tesla is mostly battery. Uh, so it's not like a tiny thing. And the, and the motor is nested around it or inside it. And hyperdrive has certain components that we've invented that allow us to build any motorcycle from it that we want. So it can be a hypersport, but it can be an adventure bike or a commuter bike or a cruiser bike. Um, and then inside the battery, the number of cells we install at the assembly line allows us to introduce a low, medium, high version of each bike or a beginner, intermediate, advanced version of each bike. So when we introduce a model, we're also able to introduce three submodels with every model at the same time, all from one engineering exercise, all from one capital investment. So, you know, we can have 12 different mo motorcycles from one investment where normally you would have had to produce 12 different engines and 12 different chassis and 12 different um, gearboxes and, and, and transmissions in the gas world. So we're right. talking a, a, a massive reduction in cost and time to have a whole line of motorbikes that hits a very wide number of customers. Um, and so that's really kind of at the heart of, of what makes Damon unique. And then layering onto that, the collision warning technology, a system that makes the motorcycle safer all the way around in 360 degrees, a problem that has never been solved before for people like yourself who used to ride. You know, everybody used to ride. They don't for a reason that comes back to risk and safety, yeah. comfort and comfort, right? Uh, life change, financial change, family change, moving, you know, they always translate in one way or another to that risk. And we've got to lower the risk. So that's a, that's a big part of it. How does that technology that you're alluding to work? How does that work? It's called Copilot. And Copilot is your Copilot. Um, on a motorcycle, you have a truncated field of view, you know, and when I take my eyes off, when I look over to check my blind spot, I lose sight of the car in front of me. Right. And that doesn't happen when you're driving a car, but on a motorcycle, it happens. And so riders do this, except yeah. we have to do it faster than that so that we're trying to not lose sight of the taillights of the car ahead. Um, and so when, when you're on a motorcycle being cut off, not seeing a car that breaks all of a sudden, being T-boned in an intersection, these are the most common ways people get into accidents. And 75% of the time, they're caused by drivers. So co-pilot is cameras and radars and other sensors all the way around the bike. And they see in 360 degrees. And while I can focus on one object as a human and, and pay attention to that one vehicle, a uh, co-pilot can focus on 64 in every direction. And so it can actually understand what is the real threat and then notify us. So in a forward collision warning scenario, if a car is braking really hard in front of me, my handlebars vibrate. So even if I'm shoulder checking and I can't see the car braking, I can feel the car braking. So it's extremely effective and my handlebars never vibrate unless that car is braking in a way that's, that I need to deal with right now. So it buys you that extra second to react and, and pull the brakes or swerve before it's too late. That's amazing. So Jay, so for, for Damon, how much capital have you guys raised to date? We raised 30 million. 30 million. And obviously, the, the, this type of projects, they're very capital intensive. And I know that you've yes, had to are. deal with, with so moments of running out of cash. So I mean, how, how, <laughs> how, do, you how do you deal with those moments with that, with that uncertainty? I mean, what, what, what does it look like? How do you embrace the struggle like that? You start with an exceptionally strong-willed and patient co-founder who doesn't get emotional or get heated up when things get scary. Yeah. Then you hire people who, and you, I guess, you hire people who are great, but you also have to have a vision and a mission that they really actually believe in. 
and they actually believe is possible and necessary and needed and that they want to give themselves to that more than they want to go work for the highest paying company. And then you keep the vision alive and you show that the vision can, you know, evolve and grow and get more specific and, and, and achievable with time. And I guess if you have all that, and in my past, my first company, I didn't. So I know what it's like to try to have that, but not have it. Um, if you have all that, and then you're faced with, you know, a wall at the end of the road, what I've learned is that, uh, is that they'll see your team will see you through. Because it's not just you on your own trying to achieve that goal, it's everyone. And they own it as much as you do in their minds. So there were four or five times when we were out of money in 17, 18, 19. Um, and the, the most, uh, the best story is, is mid-October 2019, we had an opportunity to unveil our first hypersport prototype at CES. We didn't have a bodywork. We didn't even have bodywork design. We didn't even have a designer, actually. In mid-October was when we met that designer, but we didn't even have a designer. And, and we needed to be on the showroom floor at CES, the biggest electronics show in the world, on January 7th. And we had an opportunity to be with a major partner and, and unveil a partnership. Um, we were out of capital. Our team was getting the last paycheck at the end of October. They needed to work 12 hours for all of November and December through Christmas. Then we needed to build a website that showed off this bike. We needed to build the bike. We, need, we had the collision warning system working, but we didn't have a motorcycle or a prototype. We need to design it, build it, 3D print it, assemble it, paint it, somehow get it on a truck that we didn't have and a trailer that we didn't have and get it all the way down to Las Vegas from Canada across the border over Christmas and hire a marketing team to fly up from LA to do the website design over Christmas and New Year's. And no one was getting paid until mid-January. Well, after that, no one was getting paid all the way through January. And at CES in January, the whole goal was to drive orders. And if we could prove that customers wanted this bike and drive orders, the theory was we would attract capital and the staff would finally get their salaries again. So it was, it was all for a maybe. It wasn't even for a certainty. It was for a maybe that we would get to CES and get orders and that would get capital. And that's exactly how it worked out. But I mean, we, we were basically running on fumes in the gas tank, literally all the way to Las Vegas. Wow. What an incredible story, Jay. So um, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and the size of Damon, I mean, anything that you can share, number of employees or anything else? Uh, yeah, we're about 52 at my last check, but I think we might be higher than that, 52 employees. Uh, we have uh, staff in Bogota, San Francisco, Petaluma, uh, Kitchener, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Berlin, Paris, uh, Italy, Milan, Italy. Uh, about uh, a third of the staff are remote, two-thirds are in Vancouver. Uh, our top management team members are all moving their families to Vancouver right now, literally this summer. Um, we have almost 50 patents filed. Uh, all, all the technology is our own. We reinvented the motor, the electronics, the battery pack, the collision warning system, uh, the AI, the neural nets, the cloud, uh, the app. It's 100% Daemon proprietary. We don't license technology. And it wasn't just for fun. It was absolutely necessary to achieve new levels of power and range in such a small space, much smaller than you'll find under the hood of a car. Um, and uh, what else? Yeah, 30 million raised. Uh, closing another financing round right now and uh, starting production in about a year. Oh, I didn't mention the biggest one is uh, 28, 
20 and a half million in, in projected revenue from existing pre-orders. The bikes are selling themselves. Uh, I think we sold 127 units last month. Um, and it was the busiest, the, the best pre-sales month yet. Well, congratulations. So a few million in sales month over month happening almost organically. Almost organically. Eh? In, congratulations. In yeah. yeah. It's so, pretty incredible. So let me ask you this. So imagine I'm able to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. Okay. And, and basically now imagine the wealth of knowledge that you have right now, but you're able to have a chat with that younger Jay. With that younger Jay that maybe is in, let's say, like uh, coming out of the drowning in, in, in Indonesia. And, and he's thinking about this, this company. And you're able to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching Damon. What would that be and why, based on what you know now? Oh, it would just be words of encouragement. <laughs> as funny as that may seem, but the words would be, never forget how hard sometimes we'll get and you'll get through it. And so don't ever doubt. That's it. Um, because there have been countless times when, you know, sleep so many sleepless nights when you worry and you, you can't stop thinking about what you're, the problems you're working on, the problems you have to face, um, where you, you do doubt despite all my experience and all my this and that and whatever else I've got going for me. I still doubt. I still worry. I still, but <laughs> I've had this conversation with myself many times that I think worrying keeps me alive. I think worrying keeps the whole thing alive. That not worrying leads, would lead to bravado, which would lead to sort of um, ruining oneself. Like you've got to be, you got to be magnanimous and, and enigmatic through the process and maintain a level of, of, of unsuredness and modesty. Um, or, or you could just rub people the wrong way. Um, you have to be very confident, but you can't tell people how it's going to go. You know, so there's this, I've thought many, many times about the advice I'd give myself and, and going even going further back than Damon. I mean, hire the best people around you, hire the best people you can make sure they're better than you give them room to be themselves, to be their best. Uh, listen to your, listen to your team and, uh, and get out of their way. And it's, it's easier said than done. But yeah. those, those things were what I, I didn't have at Rev and what I, I quickly corrected at Mojio. But even at Mojio, I mean, one of my biggest failures for sure at Mojio was like, I move fast. I move fast in everything. I figure things out. I obsess over all the details all the time. And when I share something with somebody, it sounds like I just, the, the idea just popped into my head when really I've been thinking about it for months. And I've been collecting data and examples and proof points and evidence. And then I expect people to understand where I'm going, even though they just heard it for the first time. And I've been working on it for two months in my head. And, and you can only go as fast as the slowest person on your team. And if you don't bring your team with you, you'll, you'll stretch the tension in the elastic band too far until it breaks. And that's exactly uh, one of the, the key challenges I had with me and my co-founding team at Mojio. You have to bring your team with you on the vision, on the journey. You can't just be on your own out at the out on the far end, like the fastest running dog in a pack, or you'll be on your own. And and that was that's been the biggest one for me to learn is to not just hire the right people, but make sure that we're all we're all going to the same vision together, and that things will work out on their own time, not the timeline you want ever, but the timeline that's right. Absolutely. Well, Jay, thank you so much for sharing that, and also thank you so so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today, Jay. It's cool. Thank you. Good conversation.
if you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.